Good evening. The railroad strike is off for now as a tentative deal is reached. Trump's big problem, a migrant stunt on Martha's Vineyard, the mayor and the right to shelter, and is the end near for COVID. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianzo with the news for Thursday, September 15th, 2022. A tentative agreement was reached between the nation's biggest freight railroads and a coalition of 12 unions. The 115,000 railroad workers still have to vote to either ratify or reject the deal. If they reject it, there still could be a strike in coming weeks. President Joe Biden announced the deal Thursday. To the American people, this agreement can avert a significant damage that any shutdown would have brought. Our nation's rail system is the backbone of our supply chain. Everything you rely on, and it's hard to realize this, from everything from clean water to food to gas to everyday, I mean, liquefied natural gas, to everything, every good that you need seems to end up on a rail getting delivered to where it needs to go. With unemployment still near record lows and signs of progress and lowering costs, this agreement allows us to continue to rebuild a better America with an economy that truly works for working people and their families. Today is a win, and I mean it sincerely, a win for America. The deal includes a 24% pay hike and better working conditions. Railroad workers will now be able to take unpaid days off for doctor's appointments without being penalized, and they won't be penalized if they are hospitalized. The companies had no policies for family leave in case of a birth or death in the family. Potentially, a worker could be fired for not showing up for a 12-hour shift. The unions claim poor performance by the railroads that move more than one-third of goods in the country contributed to the supply chain problems plaguing the economy and helping drive up prices. 30 years ago, a similar railroad strike was ended by congressional action. Yesterday, a Republican senator made a plea for intervention on the Senate floor. He was rebutted by independent Bernie Sanders. Further, that the joint resolution be considered read a third time and passed and that the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table. Is there objection? Reserving the right to object. The senator from Vermont. And I will object. While averting a strike is a key goal of the White House, uh, Biden is in a tough spot since many Democrats are strongly pro-labor. A railroad worker spokesperson says the proposed deal is complex. A railroad worker spokesperson says the proposed deal is complex and there's a lot to learn about it. So they're holding off comments until they can more closely examine the offer. And former President Trump warned on a radio show if he's indicted for mishandling classified documents, there would be big problems. If it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. What kind of problems, Mr. President? I think they'd have big problems. Big problems. You know that the legacy media will say you're attempting to incite violence with that statement. How do you respond to what will inevitably... That's not inciting. I'm just saying what my opinion is. I don't think the people of this country would stand for it. Trump's comments won a rebuke from Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin of Illinois. He said Trump is not qualified to be president. But inviting the mob to return to the streets is exactly what happened here January 6, 2021. Uh, this president knew what he was doing at that rally, and we saw the results. Five people died and 149 law enforcement agents were injured. His careless and inflammatory rhetoric has its consequences. That's why I believe he is not qualified to serve as president of the United States, nor should he be considered. 
Senator Dick Durbin is chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Trump also said an indictment would not stop him from running for the White House. And another presidential possibility on the Republican side, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, together with the governors of Texas and Arizona, has been sending thousands of migrants to so-called sanctuary states and cities to protest what they say is a flood of migrants entering the country. The migrants have arrived in New York, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. on buses, but in the latest move, the White House calls it a stunt. Florida's governor flew two plane loads of Venezuelan migrants to the Tony Resort Island of Martha's Vineyard. DeSantis made the announcement of what he's calling a Florida Freedom Tour on Thursday. We are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. And all those people in D.C. and New York were beating their chests when Trump was president, saying they were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions, saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk and they're so upset that this is happening. And it just shows you, you know, their virtue signaling is a fraud. Former President Barack Obama and other liberal notables have homes on the island off the coast of Massachusetts. About 48 migrants arrived bewildered with maps of the island provided in Florida and the address of the Martha Vineyard Community Services Office. The director of the agency is Elizabeth Focarelli. She says the challenges came suddenly at 3.30 in the afternoon when the migrants showed up without notice. Um, finding housing for 48 people in a matter of a couple of hours was a huge challenge. Thankfully, we have wonderful community partners, including St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. That's where we are. Um, and so we called upon our partners, the school, the hospital, law enforcement, the sheriff, uh, basically made phone calls to everybody we knew that we thought who could help, our legislators. And together, we put together this plan to get housing here. So it's a good temp temporary solution. It was really extremely disheartening. It was, um, you know, these, um, these migrants who presented yesterday, hi, one right behind you, <laughs> smiling at me. So, so, you know, long journey and, um, and tired, very tired people. So the fact that they were in a way duped, it seems, they were told something that wasn't the case and traveled a long way to um, to be, you know, duped in a way um, was really, really kind of overwhelming. Yeah, kind of overwhelming and sad. Social workers on the scene say the migrants, apparently from Venezuela, made a harrowing journey to the United States before finding themselves on a mysterious trip. They um, thought they were coming from Texas to Boston. Before Texas, it was about a two-month journey to get to the United States. They were expecting to come to Martha's Vineyard Community Services. They were told that they would have a job and they would have housing, and we had a program for them, basically, that they would have work and they would have housing. And so they had um, folders, each had a red folder. In the folder was a brochure to community services. There was a map from the Martha's Vineyard Airport to community services, and that's how they found us. 
White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre accused the governors of the three states of abusing migrants who she says are fleeing a communist country so the governors can promote their own political stunt. Republican governors interfering in that process and using migrants as political pawns is, uh, is shameful, is reckless, and just plain wrong. And remember, these are people who are fleeing communism, who are fleeing hardship. And if these governors truly care about uh, border security, they should ask Texas Governor Ted Cruz and Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott why they voted against the president's request for record, record funding for the Department of Homeland Security. And also the fact that, the, that Fox News and not the Department of Homeland Security the city or local NGOs were alerted about a plan to leave migrants, including children, on the side of a busy D.C. street makes clear that this is just a cruel, premeditated political stunt. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Meanwhile, New York, a city of immigrants, has its own problems with tens of thousands of homeless people. Since the 90s, there's been an agreement with the courts that the city must provide shelter for unhoused people when they ask. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been in a political war with Mayor Eric Adams, sending busloads of migrants to take advantage of the agreement. They arrive at the Port Authority bus terminal by the hundreds each day. The city has housed over 11,000 of the migrants from Texas. 8,000 remain in city shelters. In June, Adams admitted the city had violated the right to shelter agreement by failing to find beds in a timely manner. Today, the mayor assured advocates the city will continue providing shelter for unhoused people. We are continue to expand. If it comes down to um, emergency hotels, emergency shelters, we opened 23 thus far. Uh, we're going to continue to meet our obligation, but it's, we sh it should be also clear that we're required to write to shelter. This goes beyond that. What you're seeing here today, we're not stopping at the bare minimum of right to shelter. We're going beyond that to make sure people have a right to have a decent life here in our city. And so we're going to meet our challenge. If it means opening up more emergency shelters, if it means uh, looking at different locations, we're going to use every tool in our toolbox to solve this, this issue. Every asylum seeker that comes to New York will have shelter. By law, we're required and we're going to do that. We sent the team down to, the, to Texas uh, and looked at uh, the various uh, buses that are coming. Some are uh, Governor Abbott's buses, some are coming from other cities uh, in Texas, and so there's a combination. We know that we could document that we had uh, over 11,000 that enter our shelter system. 8,500 are still there. Uh, and we know that uh, a few days ago we received, I believe, eight buses uh, came in uh, to the Port Authority. And we could only make sure that we monitor what we have so we can give you accurate numbers. But again, not everyone is coming into our shelter system. When I'm in the streets, what I'm hearing from New Yorkers is uh, thank you, Eric, for what you're doing with over 11,000 people. Uh, I'm not hearing from New Yorkers that we felt uh, families that are needed. We're supposed to 
provide right, right to shelter we, we have. Uh, when I had a press conference on this issue a couple of months ago, I stated to all those who wanted to speak, pick up the phone and call us. We called everyone to inform them. Our call turned into a press release to meet us gotcha. And that is not how we communicate to resolve this problem. We need everyone to be aligned like these organizations are to get our federal government, our state government, uh, to give up, give us the resources. We need people to use their legal minds to see how do we challenge this behavior uh, from these rogue governors. Uh, we need people to do something simple. Come volunteer. <laughs> we, need, we got a lot of work we have to do. So instead of looking at this administration that has gone beyond the call of duty and opening sites like this, uh, come volunteer. That's what we do. We need help. We have not been ashamed to say that we need help. And all those who think we're not getting it right, they should come and show us how to get it right because we believe we are getting it right. The policy director for the Coalition for the Homeless is Jacqueline Simone. She tells the news Mayor Adams made the right decision. We are grateful that during this morning's press conference, Mayor Adams and his administration clarified that they support the right to shelter and are not looking to, re to reassess the right to shelter itself. Um, they had made comments in prior days that had caused alarm that perhaps they were questioning or threatening that right to shelter, which is so essential to who we are as a city and really forms the cornerstone of our social safety net in New York City. So we look forward to hearing more details about what types of changes the administration is proposing, and we will, of course, ensure that those are consonant with established law and court orders. But um, at the very least, we are glad to hear that the administration is not questioning that fundamental right to shelter itself. And no mayor has it within their power to unilaterally challenge that right. If they were to do so, they would have to go through the courts and we would strenuously fight to uphold that fundamental right to shelter, which is the reason why we don't have the massive tent encampments that you see in many other parts of the country, right? We all know that housing is a human right and that we need to do much better as a city, state, and country to ensure that people have permanent affordable housing. But we also need to ensure that people have a safe indoor shelter placement where they can access on an emergency basis tonight if they lose their housing. People are obsessing that these are immigrants, that these are migrants who came over undocumented from Mexico and from all over the world and they're being shipped up here. I mean, does that have anything to do with it? The right to shelter guarantees that the city has to provide a bed in a shelter as well as services for anyone who needs it. And that is regardless of whether people are new arrivals to New York City or whether they've been here for a very long time. I think that obviously we need to invest more in permanent housing and there is a longstanding gap that people who are undocumented cannot access most housing resources in New York City. Even though they do have the right to shelter, they don't have access to permanent housing subsidies, and that needs to be changed. But the, the city's obligation under the right to shelter stands regardless of whether people are new arrivals or have been here a long time. How about schools? How about all the other basic services you have to take advantage of, fire police service? We are a city of immigrants in New York, and even prior to the latest political fight between Governor Abbott and 
Mayor Adams, as well as other elected officials around the country, we have always been a city of immigrants. And we've always known that the new arrivals to New York City are part of what makes this city so vibrant and rich. And it is very important, not just from a legal perspective, but also from a moral perspective that New York City is welcoming people and is connecting them to the services and supports that they might need so they can be fully integrated into the fabric of this diverse city. Is the mayor, do you think, seriously handling the moral responsibility you just discussed? It's one thing to point fingers and to say that, you know, it's unfair that people are being used as political pawns. But aside from that, we need to recognize that these are human beings who have been caught up in this system. And it is the compassionate thing to do to welcome people and to ensure that they have connections to all the resources they need. So I think the city is making some progress in that respect with trying to connect people to resources. But this is going to have to be a sustained investment in in those resources. Your opinion of Governor Abbott, or at least his state's policies in some of these other states that are uh, doing this? There's much larger conversations to be had about why people are being sent to New York City and the lack of coordination, especially. I think that if there was better communication about who was being sent to New York City, as well as better communication and resources for the people who are being placed on the buses, right? I think there's been a lot of confusion among the people who have been sent here where they, not all of them were expecting to go to New York City and all of them wanted to go to New York City. And I think there clearly is a need for much better coordination um, so that we can all collaborate and help meet people's needs rather than using people as political pawns. Jacqueline Simone is policy director for the Coalition for the Homeless. An immigration lawyer at the scene in Martha's Vineyard says the migrants were given incorrect information about making asylum claims, she says, with the intent of assuring their deportation. We'll have more of this story in the next edition of the news. Meanwhile, in Washington, speaking Thursday at the United We Stand Summit at the White House, President Biden said Americans can't remain silent when it comes to fighting racism. The summit was organized by the National Action Movement, and Biden was introduced by Susan Bro, whose daughter, Heather Heyer, was murdered by a white supremacist who drove his car into a crowd of anti-racist protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2017. Bro spoke of her membership in a club of families whose loved ones were killed by fascists, Matthew Shepard, a gay man brutally killed in Wyoming, James Byrd, a black man killed by three whites in Texas, a Muslim man shot dead by a neighbor, a young army officer killed by a racist in Maryland. My membership was sealed in Charlottesville, Virginia, when a car drove into a crowd of counter-protesters. The driver admitted in court that it was a crime of hate, an attempted mass murder that only killed one person, and that person was my daughter, Heather Heyer. The car that struck her ruptured her abdominal aorta in four places at once. She was a paralegal and a waitress, unknown to anyone outside her family, friends, co-workers, and clients. Her murder resonated around the world, but the hate did not begin nor end there. Susan Bro's daughter, Heather Heyer, was murdered by a fascist who drove his car into a crowd of anti-racist protesters. Famously, then President Trump said of the killing, 
there were fine people on both sides. President Biden then sounded a clarion call to stamp out the fascists in our midst. Our own intelligence agencies in the United States of America have determined that domestic terrorism rooted in white supremacy is the greatest terrorist threat to our homeland today. So we convened this summit to make clear what the story of our time must be. It has to be a story in which each and every one of us has a vital role to play a story, a story with this message from the White House. United, united, united we stand. We're going to use every federal resource available to help communities counter hate-fuel violence, build resilience, and foster greater national unity. For example, Trainings on identifying, reporting, and combating hate fuel violence for local law enforcement agencies, workplaces, and houses of worship. Partnerships with schools that help them address bullying and harassment. I'm calling for a new era of national service through organizations like AmeriCorps to foster stronger communities and bridge divides in our society. And I'm calling on Congress to do its part. Raise the living allowance for national service positions to equivalent $15 an hour. This would make national service an accessible pathway to success for more Americans of all backgrounds. And I'm going to say it again. I am not going to stop till we ban assault weapons. We have to ban assault weapons. I mean it. In addition to the summit, the White House is announcing new actions from across the government that tackle hate-based violence, as well as actions from tech companies like YouTube, Twitch, Microsoft, and Meta. And in health news, the World Health Organization on Wednesday said the world has never been in a better position to end the COVID-19 pandemic. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said at a press briefing, the end is in sight. Last week, the number of weekly reported deaths from COVID-19 was the lowest since March 2020. We have never been in a better position to end the pandemic. We're not there yet, but the end is in sight. A marathon runner does not stop when the finish line comes into view. She runs harder with all the energy she has left. So must we. We can see the finish line. We are in a winning position, but now is the worst time to stop running. Now is the time to run harder and make sure we cross the line and reap the rewards of all our hard work. If we don't take this opportunity now, we run the risk of more variants, more deaths, more disruption, and more uncertainty. So let's seize this opportunity. Meanwhile, the downward trend in the global monkeypox outbreak is continuing. But as with COVID-19, this is not the time to relax or let down our God. This is the time for all affected countries and communities to keep doing what's working. 
WHO Director General Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus, about 500 people a day have been dying of COVID-19 in the United States. That's down from nearly 4,000 a day in 2020. The U.S. has the highest number of COVID deaths in the world. And finally, NASA says the search for life on Mars is getting more interesting with each upload of data from the Perseverance rover now exploring Jezero Crater on the Red Planet. Today, NASA scientists Suna Sharma and Ken Farley said the rover is finding more and more carbon-based chemicals that may be linked to life on Mars in the distant past. Jezero was selected for this mission because it meets several key mission goals. It allows us to explore an ancient habitable environment. It allows us to seek evidence of possible Martian life in rocks deposited at that time, about three and a half billion years ago. And I want to emphasize this mission is not looking for extant life, things that are alive today. Instead, we're looking into the very distant past when Mars's climate was very different than it is today. The mission is proceeding extremely well. We are making very good progress at understanding the geologic history, finding some surprises in the history of the crater. And we are also making good progress in collecting this suite of samples for the Mars sample return effort. It's clear that we are uncovering a bigger story that's happening in Jezero Crater. So we found signals that we think are possibly from organic matter on every target that we've observed to Sher with Sherlock to date. And this isn't really unexpected. It aligns with what we've learned from studies on Earth and Martian meteorites and from Mars research from our sibling rover, Curiosity. However, it does say that organics seem to persist in the very harsh Martian surface environment, which is very exciting for us. NASA scientists Suna Sharma and Ken Farley, the rover found Jezero Crater is made up of volcanic rocks and a delta where a river apparently flowed into a lake in the crater more than three billion years ago. And that's some of the news for Thursday, September 15th, 2022. The news is written, produced, and anchored by myself, Paul DiRienzo. You can hear the news at soundcloud.com. Search for the news with Paul DiRienzo, or you can get it at your favorite podcasting service, whether it be uh, Apple Podcasts or others. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.